Welcome once again into the Soccer OG. Hey, that's me, Max Bretos. Episode 187. As always, a gentle reminder to rate, review, download, subscribe, tell a friend of our podcast. Uh, our, our producer has informed me that we're now in more countries than ever before. Thrilled to see the numbers continue to skyrocket in, in India, where uh, the, the appetite for the game is huge, despite what happened in the Asian Cup. I blame myself. Because I, I I brought in Pulas Tadar and we we kind of went sideways. So, but ha- have faith, India, and we'll talk a lot about football. It'll get better, and you're in the right place. Check out also my YouTube page under my name Max Bretos, popping up new videos, so you can be visually stimulated with lots of cool graphics, etc. Check that out as well as we continue to provide a lot of content for you. MLS season will be coming up next week. We will have an MLS show with a very special guest. Stand by for that. You just like to hold off on that just until the very end. And uh, we have a great guest this week. I am really pumped about this. I've already recorded the conversation, and you're going to love it. Ryan O'Hanlon, an ESPN, ESPN writer, he wrote the book Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Games, The Analytics Revolution, Analytics Data, Changing the Sport uh, in so many ways, and it is changing the way clubs find success. It is changing the way people watch it and make money off of it via sports betting. So a lot here, and I know many people are interested. I wasn't that interested in it at first. I read the book, highly recommend it. Go out and get it and support Ryan. I'm a slow reader and I tore through that book. Net Gains is its title. He'll be joining me here in the business end and in stoppage time, we will talk about the latest developments of the U.S. men's national team, in particular with regards to striker. As we head towards the Nations League and the Copa America, who are going to get one of those positions and how many of them will be available? It's a really interesting conversation. We'll get into all of those details right here on the Soccer OG. The rundown is now. Let us get into it, all the big topics that are keeping our attention over the last few weeks. It feels a little bit slow, but we do have the return of the Champions League, and which, like the last couple years, I'm waiting to get a little bit more excited. I am excited about the teams that could win it, and we will speak to Ryan O'Hanlon, who had an article where he used the data, and he did this before in the World Cup, and I'll bring that up with him later, where the data kind of backed up the picks. So uh, he has certain teams making a run through. I think most folks will say Real Madrid or Manchester City, the way they are playing, the way they are built right now, are the clear-cut favorites. But stick around with Ryan. He sees it a little differently. Sees it a little differently. Some interesting picks there. So that's a little teaser, which I should be doing more often. When I was at ESPN, they were adamant about the tease to keep the audience around. But I, I assume all of you guys listen to the podcast from beginning to end without interruption. Am I, am I mistaken on that? <laughs> so the, the Champions League uh, began, it was like a bit of a bore. I mean, with the games, Real Madrid uh, should have lost to Leipzig, to be honest, but they won a game. That's a sign of a good team. And I want to say this about Real Madrid because they have had, they've allowed one goal in their last four games. And that was in the Derby. We know about Kylian Mbappe. He's going to be there next season. I know it's not etched in stone, but that's going to happen. Vinicius is playing like the best player in the world. Jude Bellingham, who wasn't there for this game in the midweek, 
playing like the best player in the world. So you have three guys that could be candidates for best player in the world when Kylian Mbappe arrives. But they're doing it without allowing goals. And what is amazing is they're missing three huge def- center defensive stars. Eder Militao, who you would consider amongst the top five center backs in the world. David Alaba, probably around 10-15. And Rudiger, just a little further back, maybe a little bit past his prime, but still very good. All those guys are out. And they are finding a way to push through. So, I mean, Real Madrid is a big boost to the Champions League, which needs a boost. You know, Man City are the reigning champs. They'll, they'll provide a boost. And our Kevin De Bruyne in that Copenhagen game, uh, just excellent in uh, how influential he was and ubiquitous he was. It was, uh, it, if I, you get a Man City-Real Madrid final, the folks at CBS will be pumped. The folks at UEFA will be uh, pumped as well. And I think the cream shall rise to the cro- tro- <laughs> The cream shall rise to the top. Whoa, I was trying to jump gun my macho man impression. Whoa, dig it. So uh, Real Madrid and Man City, we got their first looks. I think both are going to make it to the quarterfinals. I didn't mention this with Ryan, but he had, when he was doing that data about the teams, PSV he has making a decent run. PSV with the three Americans. That's all we really have in the Champions League in 2024 is Serginho Dest, Malik Tillman, and Ricardo Pepe. And they are part of a a team that is pulling away in the Dutch Air Divisie. And a lot of people like what they can do in a competition like this. They play Dortmund, which I think they have a really good shot against. I mean, that's a great draw for them for as a second-place team. You know, it could have been worse. It could have been Real Madrid or Manchester City or Arsenal, who I put up on that line. I wanted to mention this about Arsenal because I sat there and watched them just tear apart West Ham over the weekend. And I, I just want to point this out why I'm, I'm buying more stock in the Gunners because I've seen them tear teams apart like that a few times already this year. And that's what Man City does. And now Arsenal's starting to do that a little bit more often. Not only did they score six, they, scored, they could have scored 10. And they also could have... I mean, the, the more impressive part is that West Ham never touched the ball. I don't even... They never touched it, even when they were down four goals at the half. And fans were leaving the stadium. I, I heard a funny... Uh, uh, I saw a funny tweet... When Declan Rice, a former West Ham player, scored his amazing goal at the end and he didn't celebrate because in respect to his former club. And the tweet said, well, he might as well have celebrated. All the fans had left, which is probably true in that massive venue. So uh, the way Arsenal just picked teams apart. And look, the margins are – you look at the games and it, it reminds you how thin the margins are in this sport because – you hit the set pieces, which Arsenal did, and they score goals. And maybe one deflects, and then they don't get through, but everything was just right. So I say they could have scored 10, but in reality, I mean, everything kind of just fell right, and that's how this sport goes. But, you know, West Ham, they were just smashed by Manchester United, so as a Hammer supporter, I'm very nervous. Uh, I don't think they're going to part ways with David Moyes, but I, I think they should. It's uh, all due respect. I think David Moyes has done a remarkable job. He always, it, but I, it's not it's not happening right now. So we uh, we push forward with regards to that. All right. I want to make sure I don't speak all these things out of order. We talked about the Champions League, and oh, 
of course. You know, I talked about Lionel Messi last week and the situation with China. And I, it's, it's, it's getting really bizarre. I mean, these articles, these were published by the Times.co.uk, the Times, the London Times, that fans in China were rooting against Messi and using the Falkland Islands as uh, the bait, taunting him over the Falklands about it should belong to England. And I'm, I don't want to get in a geopolitical conversation, but what is happening? There's got to be more here to have this kind of vitriol and just ang- pent up that you would bring the Falklands into it. And I wouldn't bring this up if it was like some... This was on the Londons, and it was on Sky.com um, about how they directed that. And then uh, <laughs> the, the Times saying, this is such an... It's an inter- I mean, you have to click on this. Britain's relations with China have taken an unexpected turn for the better as an unconnected r- row argument. So deepens over the non-appearance by Lionel Messi, the Argentine football star. So China's relations with England are getting better because of the Falklands and they're siding with England because Messi no-showed the game? What's going on? Lionel Messi will will wrap up his preseason this weekend at home against Newell Old Boys, his, uh, his boyhood club, and hopefully be a nice shot at tonic where we can get back on the rails and Inter-Miami can get ready for their regular season. Um, Inter-Miami, look, this is the thing. They're making news everywhere all the time. Whether you think it's good, whether you think it's it's counterproductive that they make news that cannot be viewed as positive, uh, I kind of think it's okay. So I was, there was a bit of a shock because there's this great prospect, Federico Redondo, the son of Fernando Redondo, one of the best players I've ever seen. He plays at Argentino Juniors, Spanish-born, where his dad was playing. He was also a tremendous defensive midfielder. His daddy was a pistol, and he's a son of a gun. So Federico Redondo apparently going to come to Inter-Miami for $8 million. Uh, and the folks in Argentina are up in arms. <laughs> They're like, no, don't go to Inter-Miami. Stay here or go to Europe. So it's everywhere you go, people are talking about Inter-Miami. So I, I think it's a good thing. But some of it's crazy. <laughs> I, uh, and I'm not getting involved with the Falklands, okay? Uh, it's, uh, that's a very sensitive topic. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people died in, in a conflict in 1982. Uh, it's a small island just off the coast of Argentina, which is English. It's part of the, the Commonwealth. So uh, I won't... I won't delve into that. So, uh, but you know, this is what's going on, and we're excited about the MLS season. I'm excited about seeing what Inter Miami. I'm pulling for them for, to see if they can, you know, quiet some of the doubters and uh, the uh, the the <laughs> the beat shall go on. I guess. So there you have it. That is the rundown. I don't want to get. Oh, Quincy Promise the uh, six years. A six-year jail sentence for, um, you know, getting involved in the cocaine trade. And it, it just breaks your heart. I mean, because this had to be a mistake. I mean, what was he, what was he doing? He was a former Dutch international, 
sentenced to six years for drug trafficking. Um, he was almost currently with Spartak Moscow. I mean, just an inordinate amount of cocaine, 1,300 kilograms. What is that? That's like 10,000 pounds. Uh, I'm going to do the transfer here. So bear with me. Kilograms to pounds. You guys are probably sitting there going, I know this. What are you, what are you going on? It's a lot. Uh, 3,000 pounds. I saw it was way off, so I, <laughs> I apologize. Um, he, he was involved. How do you get involved in this? The guy was such a, a, a great career and so much talent and potential. I mean, he was, was he 32, so he's on the back end of his career, and he's going to spend it in jail. Just for an inordinate amount of, uh, I mean, that is, it's you know you can't slap someone on the wrist when we're talking about three thousand pounds of cocaine. So uh, I I hope it it, it it ends well, but you know six years is a long long time. And I, I I I don't know the inner workings of the case, but apparently uh, not really defensible in the case of Quincy Promise. So there you go. We will. Uh, we will roll on here. Oh, I wanted to, one last thing. It's a little out of order. Uh, Lionel Scaloni was asked if he would coach in Major League Soccer, the coach who led Argentina to the World Cup trophy in 2022. Uh, he said he would be interested, and I think that's great. That would be a great person to have, because I think in the U.S. We need, better, we need more coaching, good quality coaching. And I think Scaloni's at the top. And when you see what Argentina's done, not only winning the, the World Cup, but the Copa America... Messi's going to get the credit, and he deserves credit. Some of these other guys, but Scaloni's style, making Argentina so difficult to beat, that is why Argentina's lifting trophies. He is the reason. Without him, I am convinced that Argentina doesn't win the Copa and doesn't win the World Cup. Don't at me. This is what managers, coaches are supposed to do when they take over a national team. By the way, Argentina's not fun to watch. I think we roll in to see Argentina, we get excited. Messi, not... The game starts and you're like, this is Drek, but it's effective. And that's what most national teams are doing. That's why I want the U.S. team. I think some people say, hey, we want to be expansive. I go, no, we don't. We want to win. And you win by being tough and uncompromising and sometimes don't touch the ball for long stretches. So uh, I know that doesn't sound great for MLS to bring Lionel Scaloni, but bring him on. Let's see what he can do. The soccer OG. My guest in the business end, Ryan O'Hanlon, and his new book, Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Game, The Analytics Revolution. He joins me next. We are back in time now for the business end. My pleasure to welcome to the program writer with ESPN, Ryan O'Hanlon, who if you don't get to read on the regular, you should. ESPN, as I said here, the best destination for us uh, soccer procurers here in the United States and abroad. He's also written a book, which I I finished about six months ago, Ryan. So I wanted to have this conversation. I'm glad we came around. Net gains inside the beautiful game of the analytics revolution. What what got you to write that book? Because that revolution, first of all, I'll preface this and as I'll hand it off to you. I wasn't really aware. I was at ESPN. I was working at SportsCenter, so I was a little moved out of soccer. But that people were going to sites and to destinations to just consume copious amounts of analytics to get a better understanding of the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
we have the phrase revolution in the title because it's sort of a catchy idea, but like it's a very fledgling revolution, I would say. <laughs> so, um, so what got me into it is, I mean, so I played soccer growing up, played, I was a mediocre division one midfielder, um, you know, had where, high where did you go to school? If you don't mind uh, me asking. Holy Cross. In Dude, that's a yeah. legit, that's a solid program. <laughs> no, I mean, we were, we were decent. Like we, uh, what we won the regular season Patriot League my sophomore year. We we lost in the conference finals and we're like uh, we beat BC my junior year. Uh, no big deal, but I scored the winning goal in overtime um, <laughs> against Alejandro Bedoya and a handful of other like youth national team guys. The legend um, of your midfield days is starting to grow in just a matter of minutes here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, um, you know, and then I had forty caps with the U.S. men's national team. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, you uh, had the hook in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, played growing up um, and uh, got into journalism, became an editor, was working in sports journalism. I worked at uh, Grantland, which is a was a old ESPN affiliated site with Bill Simmons. Hey, by and the way, he was a Holy Cross guy, too, correct? Yes. Uh, let's just say that. I can't convince any of your listeners that that's not why I got hired, but uh, I'll just say that it wasn't. Um, my was neighbor, saying. when my neighbor, when I lived in Connecticut, went to Holy Cross as well. And well, they, there was a couple, they were always talking about uh, Bill Simmons. So that was a connection. So when I, when I hear Holy Cross, I, I think of that. And the other one that comes to mind, it's already a rupture, is Gordy Lockbaum. Because I remember the Sports Illustrated cover when they, he, they pushed him as a Heisman candidate. Yeah. Yeah, he was what an an incredible running back at Holy Cross, and I think he he played other sports too. I think that yeah. was that was his whole thing. But so I was in a quick story. Um, I'm sure your listeners will potentially not care at all about this, but you'll like it. Um, <laughs> I was working for the Worcester Telegram, which is like the local paper in in Worcester, Massachusetts, where Holy Cross is. And what I was doing, I would man the like uh, sports desk at night, so like all the high school coaches would call in with the scores of their games and like, you know, the, the, you know, however many points each guy scored and I kind of plugged them into a spreadsheet or whatever. Then they'd be in the paper the next day. And then like one day, like Gordy Lockbaum is like the guy calling and I'm just like talking to him on the phone and he's like telling me wrestling scores. And I'm just like, this is incredibly surreal. <laughs> but so anyway, I would, I, I would get a little starstruck if I got that phone call just because of growing up as a kid. That was a name that, you know, had had a really like the 15 minutes of fame. It went right well beyond that with him. I think that there's like a 30 for 30 short uh, for, uh, uh, about him um, from ESPN if people want more context than what we're kind of babbling about. <laughs> I will watch. I will watch that. I'm sure a couple of yeah. people will. And I'm sure watch. a couple of people have. Yeah. Um, but so kind of went into sports or journalism in general, eventually made my way to Grantland where I was an editor and all the sports stuff we were doing in other sports, baseball, NFL, NBA, had a lot of data or kind of more, it's not even data, right? It's more like attempts at putting objective information on your opinions about the sport, right? Um, why this team didn't win and kind of combining that with like tape or combining it with you know, still like beautiful writing, right? But being like, I think this thing and then showing there's actually a statistical record that this thing happened. Um, while in my head, I'm like th reading this stuff and it's like, oh, 
we don't do soccer like that at all. It's all just very opinionated and kind of like <laughs> spiritual in a way. And a lot of talk about like confidence and form and, you know, wanting it more and stuff like that. So I, you know, I'm working in these other sports where they're weaving these things together. So I got interested in like, what are there people doing this for soccer? Like, you know, and then the more I think about it, it's like, oh yeah, like this kind of money ballization of sports, like it's inevitable that's going to happen with soccer, right? Because like it helps you, it helped you win in all the other sports. Like the nerds won in football, in baseball, and in basketball. Um, so like I kind of had this like light bulb moment where I was like, one, I find this stuff interesting. And two, like it's going to come for soccer, like eventually. So I felt like I kind of had like a little bit of a cheat code, right? Where I was like, I know that this is going to like eventually take over. So I got interested in it kind of for an amalgamation of those different things. And then just kind of infused it into my writing. We had a guy, Mike Goodman at Grantland, who was fantastic at this stuff too. Um, and then it kind of just grew from there, basically. Well, consider me one that's kind of got piqued the interest of that wouldn't have done that a few years ago when people were starting to build this data uh, mm -hmm. that I read in the book where I mean, it, it must be hours and hours to kind of put that together to find those moments. And I agree with you that that is going to happen. I will also, I should also preface this. I was going to mention it. I've referenced your book a couple of times during one of my broadcasts in MLS. Portland Timbers had Evander who played for Michelin. So I mentioned yeah. you and said, well, Michelin is this club that's on the forefront of analytics. And you 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 said it yourself. It was there, there, they are on the cusp of making making it hit for soccer. No, we're obviously not near the level like Moneyball, which is always going to be the the expression we use and how big it is with uh with within baseball and you know just re redefine the sport in many ways. Then mm -hmm. what you also mentioned about um when I work with MLS, we are we have meetings and expected goals come up and up again. And that's a big discussion about well, they're not real goals and expected goals didn't add to the victory, but I think I they're they are certainly very encouraged and demand that we put that through there. And I agree with it. And I guess the point the question I wanted to ask is though we haven't seen it like baseball and football and basketball. Um, but you certainly feel that that's about to happen. I mean, there, there were some examples you use where it's happening, but we haven't seen it uh, at least gain results for clubs, clubs or, or coaches that are, are, are ahead of the curve, I would, you would say, with regards to implementing it. But um, how have they seen their results? Yeah, so I think it's important to make a distinction here between how MLS works and how European soccer works, where... MLS, like Messi is going to be making more money than I think it's like uh, six teams in MLS. Like his salary is more than their entire payroll, at least last year. Um, but in like La Liga, there were only six teams in La Liga who Messi didn't make more money than. So the finances of European soccer are way more um, uh, unequal than they are in MLS. MLS is like essentially functions as in the same way that the NBA, the NFL, MLB with some form of salary cap where like you can't really outspend your opponents by that much. You can outspend your opponents, obviously, but like finding ways to make your dollar go further with acquiring undervalued players, stuff like that is almost more, it's way more important in MLS than it is in European soccer in a lot of ways. Um, because in European soccer, 
you know, Manchester United can make every wrong decision for like 15 straight years and still like not be in risk of getting relegated, still finish in the Champions League like a handful of times because they have so, so much money. So in that sense, um, there's a structural, there's a smaller structural incentive, I guess, in European soccer to like be smart about how you're spending when like you can just outspend your opponents a lot of the time. But so like Liverpool have their entire team, their great run that they were on under Klopp, like that was built off of using data to find undervalued players, basically. Um, like Mohamed Salah is a global superstar, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino. But these guys were not like massive $90 million signings. They were all 40 to 30 million seemed decent like when Salah came a lot of people were like oh he kind of washed out at Chelsea what are we doing here and then he was like had the best individual season in Premier League history basically right away so Liverpool are like the prime example of using it um uh like top down kind of decree that we need to be more objective of how we use information and then Brentford and Brighton are like super analytical they're both owned by professional sports bettors where, you know, in sports betting, you need to be very confident. You have to have projections. You have to be aware of uncertainty. And they have, you know, two of the lowest payrolls in the Premier League, but yet Brighton is borderline top six team. Brentford is a top half team. So those are kind of the prime examples in, in sort of the Premier in the Premier League, I guess, which is, you know, the, the most lucrative league in the world. Brighton's a great example, and you know we've seen some massive sales of players, uh, Moises Caicedo, Alexis McAllister, yeah. and that has to get me to think that some of these other clubs say instead of paying Brighton a hundred million or whatever it is for these players, maybe we've got to develop that and find these players because obviously it's it's the the data, the analytics, but it's also getting out there and scouting and seeing if it all adds up. Is there do you think that movement is coming where it's going to be comprehensive? Are we there already? Yeah, we're not close to it being there. I hmm. think the thing that that like differentiates Liverpool, Brighton, and Brentford is that so Liverpool's owned by John Henry, who owns the Red Sox, famously tried to hire Billy Bean away from the Oakland A's, then hired Theo Epstein. So those three teams have like kind of a top-down, like the owner is like, we need to find ways to make our decisions more objective, right? Um, while every other team now has analytics people, but most of the teams still don't really listen to these um, guys. They just have them because, like, it would look pretty bad if we don't have one um, on our, you know, on our uh, staff list or whatever, right? Um, so, like, this, there's a lot of structural reasons for why it hasn't taken over, but you would think, right, like, that what Brighton does is, like, they're aware that, it's really hard to scout players. Like, I don't think anyone, you see this in every sport, right? The NFL draft, people are so confident over who's going to be the number, who should be the QB one, right? In each draft. And then we saw in this last draft, the Panthers traded up, drafted Bryce Young. He had a horrible season with the second pick. Houston got CJ Stroud. He ended up being like the best rookie quarterback ever. So I think Brighton are very keenly aware that like, even big money transfers go wrong all the time. So they're just like, we're going to use data to like, like you don't have the physical capacity to scout the entire globe, right? You just, you can't have one person at, a, at every game on planet earth. Um, that would cost way too much money. 
So they're just using data to basically like create parameters and then find players that fit into these parameters. And then they have a short list of, you know, we have these 10 guys across the world that seem like they would fit. And then you you can scout from there and you can have your scout be like, yeah, the data shows this, but like he can't do like he can't turn left. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's not showing up because uh, like the data can't tell us that. Uh, and then they kind of make their bets from there and they tend to do a thing where they spend like five million on like 10 unknown players and hope that like three of them hit instead of spending 50 million on one guy where there's still like a good chance it doesn't work out. It's so it's so thorough. I, I guess just to reinforce that, though, it's compared to those other sports where you have these breakthroughs where you, OK, this guy fits the bill. He can do this, this and this. He is a good player for the Boston Red Sox. It, it, it's worked in soccer, but there, I, I guess I, the, I don't know how the best way to put it. Are there are there more misses than hits is. Yeah. So through line in the book, uh, there's a bunch of people that have moved from other sports into soccer. Um, there's this guy, Luke Bourne, who he's now a co-owner at AC Milan. He worked for the Sacramento Kings. He also worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory, working on a lot more important things than soccer. And he basically told me that like quantifying soccer is the most challenging intellectual exercise of his life. Um, so because soccer is so dynamic, right, we could have you could have a game where the two teams could just stare at the ball, right? They could the guy could roll the kickoff, then they could both stand there. And the ref would just be like helpless, right? The fans could start booing and the players could just stand there and nothing would happen, right? While like in the NF NBA, there's a shot clock. <laughs> in the NFL, there's a play clock and downs. In baseball, it's like pitcher versus batter over and over again. Soccer, it's such a dynamic. Possession is very fluid. There's no stops after possession changes hands. There's very few shots. So it's kind of very hard to quantify and most of the efforts toward of quantifying it, you kind of get into this thing where it's like, we can tell you that everything that happens around the goals is very valuable. And then everything that happens everywhere else, like it's not valuable at all compared to like one pass into the penalty area. Um, so it kind of creates a, an interesting idea of like, yeah, you know, like I was a midfielder. Those are the players I watch. Those are the players that like, if you understand soccer, right, you understand Sergio Busquets, right? The famous quote is like, um, you know, you, uh, <laughs> what's the, it's like, if you, see, if you watch Busquets, you see the whole game. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Um, and then it creates this thing of like, well, but like, maybe like what Busquets is doing, like, wasn't as valuable as I thought. And if Barcelona had like random La Liga midfielder in that role, they might've still been as successful. Cause after all they had Messi, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't think that that's true, but it kind of speaks to the the intellectual challenge of trying to like, quantify this and then you get into the fact that like the sport is constantly changing and the way that it's played is constantly changing so what's valuable on the field might be constantly changing too which is what makes it really interesting to me beyond in a way that like baseball it's like oh you want to strike guys out and hit home runs and we kind of end there i it really is it's it's a huge moment in the in the development of the sport because we've seen these massive changes it was that old school 442 we hit yeah. the ball we go this direction and that's the way it is and then we've seen some uh sophistication this evolution with the way people play and everyone's very different the 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 gay impress that we saw in germany and you know that that seemed unheard of just a few years ago and now it's it's everywhere and i think that is going to grow uh it, it's really it's it's going to it's also interesting how you mentioned Luke Bourne and 
these really impressive people that are getting into it and finding their way to these clubs that are looking for that edge. I mean, this has got to be, uh, there, there has to be, uh, this has to be a very specific profession that maybe people would want to get into in the next few years because you look at the success of others, it not only finding work, but finding work in high places. Yeah. I mean, the guys that work for Liverpool are all like their former director of research is Ian Graham. He has a PhD from Oxford or Cambridge in theoretical physics. physics. Their current director of research uh, is Will Spearman. He's from the U.S., he worked on the Large Hadron Collider, which is where they discovered like the Higgs boson particle, which is like sort of like the key to how like the world works. So like, <laughs> it, it, like when That's I quite a pivot I, for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so it's so whenever I write an article and people are like, oh yeah, it's too hard to measure. I'm just like, buddy, like there are people that are like way smarter than you know anyone you've ever met that are working for these teams and like figuring things out. So yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I think they'll be. You know, the hard thing is like, so they've kind of introduced tracking data where you have these cameras that are taking picture, you know, hundreds of hundreds of pictures every few seconds of where the ball is, where everyone is on the field. And it spits out like millions of data points per game on like a spreadsheet. So like you can't just have like a random person look at that information and create any actionable like insight from it so you need kind of a, you need a, a high level <laughs> person that also kind of understands soccer theory to kind of translate it into anything you can use you need a staff too obviously to, to log all of that just like <laughs> well I, I wanted to mention the book again it's net gains inside the beautiful game uh of the inside the beautiful game and analytics revolution ryan o'hanlon is the author i i picked it up and read it and you know i'm a slow reader and i ripped through that ryan so i really enjoyed it and i didn't know a lot about the subject matter i i wanted to know more and i feel like i certainly achieved that and certainly doing that here so check out the book and it's not not just for clubs but i you recently did a champions league predictor based on analytics and data you had, I, I was reading it, it sounds like you have Bayern Munich and Arsenal as the most likable, most likely winners of the Champions League, which probably surprised some people because Manchester City and Real Madrid would probably be the bookies' favorites. But I would, I recall you doing that at the World Cup and the data proved to be pretty accurate as to some of the teams we're going to have success based on your findings. Uh, how, how do you see that as um, data in other worlds? I mean, this is, you mentioned the gambling before, but this is something that, you know, I'm not a gambler. I don't know about you, but they are looking for that edge and yeah. this could be a place to, to find it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the thing I, I like use the betting markets in my writing just as like a gut check on what I'm thinking. Right. Cause the markets are going to have a pretty accurate opinion of who the best teams are. And it's like, oh yeah, this team's numbers look great. But then I look at the betting markets and they're like odds of winning are very low. So that kind of, I think for me that it's useful in that way, but I'm anyone that's a professional soccer better that has success is using a ton of data. Like there's just no, you're not having gut feel and winning money. Not, not this um, sport. <laughs> no, definitely not. But or yeah. Unless I, you're a glutton for punishment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but yeah, with, with international soccer, it's useful but it also is useless at the same time, right? Where it's like you play seven games at the World Cup if you win. Like it's that's so much random crap can happen in seven games. So much random crap can happen in three games. 
and you know for an example in the last world cup like germany's like expected goal differential was like absurdly high um ended up being the best one at the world cup over the course of the tournament which is skewed by the fact that they didn't get out of their group so they didn't have to play that many hard teams <laughs> whoops but it's like, you know some we've all you one of the things about using data with soccer right is you kind of start to understand how random it is and everyone that's ever watched soccer knows that this right you've watched plenty of games where like one team is just pounding the other team creating a ton of chances and they just don't score and the other team has like two counterattacks and they win two nothing and you're just in bed you're just like yeah like i i'm upset like we were wasteful in front of goal but like we also did 99 percent of the good stuff and we just didn't convert the chances so like I, i think in a lot of ways what's been interesting about using something like expected goals it really is intuitive to like what we kind of know about how soccer works and i would hate to lose that part of the sport the little plucky underdog yep parking the bus <laughs> getting well, one shot and scoring sport. that's like soccer is almost like it's like optimized to be random right like that's why the world cup's amazing like we there's barely any rules like there's a ball that you have to kick with your feet and it bounces. So that's going to create all kinds of like inherent uncertainty. Um, and like MLS in particular, like that league is like, yeah. it's like they want the most parity possible. And it's just like, you go into a season and it's like pretty much anything can happen in a given season. It feels like an MLS, like any team could suddenly like be the one seed in a conference. Right. Um, which, you know, in some ways is awesome, but maybe, you know, it makes it a little harder for kind of narratives to emerge or something like that. It sure is. And look, uh, just getting back to the sports betting, it, it, we see when it's done in the NFL yeah. and uh, MLS would love to get that smoke. Uh, but, and I, I think I've even pitched that let's do a, a gambling show or something just so we can get our audience a little more sophisticated. But I mean, that sounds like you're, you're opening your up for a, a lot of, as many misses as hits because it's just so hard to predict. I mean, it's not, it's, you can play a lot more with Man City playing at Copenhagen and kind of get a better idea, but MLS, uh, that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, certainly a, a conversation to have because that is in, in a league looking at booster, it boosts its popularity. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, we probably all have conflicted feelings about this and how, the advertising with uh, sports gambling is like <laughs> kind of absurd in my opinion, how much we get bombarded with DraftKings and FanDuel ads and all that stuff. Um, but yeah. Caesars, I mean, Caesars as well. It's starting to pick up. <laughs> yes. Caesars for sure. Uh, Peyton Manning and Eli Manning among their sponsors. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, there, there is an opportunity. There's certainly an opportunity for it given how much we're seeing being dumped into ML- into the NFL, if MLS can get like a very, very small percentage of that amount, it would still be a big deal for the league, I would think. I do like the Byron pick. I didn't think about it because I was talking about a friend and you're, the, what you mentioned about Thomas Tuchel, who, who took a team, Chelsea, and won it, took PSG and made a final. I, I'm a big, maybe maybe that's a bit old fashioned. Maybe it wasn't, but it's a bit old fashioned where you say, yeah, you see a guy who's who knows how to navigate his way through. And I think that, that uh, certainly makes sense. And then the, the follow-up about, hey, maybe the, the league's getting away and all of a sudden let's focus on this. It's it's it kind of makes sense. So maybe I'll tell my gambling friends to to take a to take a sniff, Ryan, <laughs> if they do so <laughs> uh, feel it feel uh the the itch. Um 
Again, uh, net gains, Ryan O'Hanlon, check it out. I, before we part ways, I know we talked about the analytics, but you write a lot about as you being an American. Obviously, we're all excited about the World Cup. Uh, an article about Christian Pulisic, and you know, you've had a good look at where this is all gone. And we're, you know, what are those things that excite you about what is developed about the U.S. game um, in, in any department, especially now where we have this huge tournament coming up this summer, and we have an even more huge tournament coming in two years. And this, this is a, you know, this is that moment in time for, and we're we're all hoping it happens where this sport just goes bang into that mainstream and never comes back out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I think, you know, we've, I've been like waiting my whole life being like, this will be the thing that makes soccer make, make it. Same, same. But really what's happened, right. Is it's just been a very gradual growth while like, I literally, I remember listening to you like on Fox sports world growing up, um, or, uh, whatever the, was it just Fox Fox Fox, Fox, Fox sports world? Yeah. And then it pivoted to Fox sports world. And then we had to get rid of, it was difficult. So we had to get rid of the rugby and the darts, which I enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> like that was how I watched soccer. And like, I would watch a random arsenal game on the channel and I'd have no clue, like the context of the game. Like I wouldn't know when it like this, what the standings were. I'd just be like, oh, like Robert Perez, like this guy seems cool. Like he doesn't rate, he barely lifts his feet off the ground when he runs. I've never seen something. Like this That's what you said. He looked like he had slippers on. Yeah. Um, and you know, now it's like like I was just in London. It's way easier to watch soccer in the US than it is in London, the Premier League. Like it's way easier. Um, and like every you know, young person I talked to that's a sports fan has like a soccer team that they root for. Well, like when I was in high school, it was like me and my buddies that played on the soccer team. And it was only like a quarter of us knew anything about like the Champions League or anything like that. So like, I think it's probably just more steady growth is what's going to keep happening. It's very well positioned, right? I know that's not as fun of an answer, but like, as for the team itself, like, I don't know, I, I feel like I feel like my opinion of the team is always the opposite of what the general American fan base feels, which I feel like that's actually a good way to kind it's of, probably, it's probably the accurate take then. <laughs> like I, I thought they had a good world cup. Like they were undefeated in the group stages, the game against mm -hmm. England, probably the best game the U S has played at the world cup in a long time. Like they could have won that game. Um, and then against the Netherlands, yes, they lost, but like, if Pulisic finishes that chance that he gets a minute in. Thank you. So like the Netherlands scored with every attack that they had. It wasn't like they were pinning the U.S. back and just like dominating them. Plus it's the Netherlands, right? Like that's just a tough team. Like you can't expect to just always beat them. So it's, and then you look and the U.S. had the second youngest team at the World Cup. Like they're pretty well, Gio Reyna barely played. Um, they're like pretty well positioned at this next World Cup, right? Where it's, they're going to be a prime age team. Hopefully everyone's healthy, which, you know, everyone was healthy at this past World Cup, which might be unlikely. Hopefully there's a handful of younger players that kind of come out of nowhere and they're at home, which just, we know that makes, you know, a huge difference in how well you perform in a World Cup. So, you know, <laughs> I feel like usually over the past 15 years, I've always been like to American fans, tamp down your expectations, like, Aaron Johansson isn't the person to like, you know, pin your like happiness to. Well, now for the first time ever, I'm like, yeah, like get excited. Like the team could do really well at the World Cup. Everything is kind of heading toward that, it feels like.
Well, you said it's a slow development, which I tell people because people I think are impatient about. So we got we got to catch up to hockey. We got to do this. It is a nice steady burn, but it's moving in the right direction to to your point. And I was in London and Italy, and I was in, in Italy in 1994. And I remember the way they covered soccer. They have these variety shows, people screaming about what's happening on the grounds at Salernitana. Let's go to enough. You don't see any action. So I went back there. I thought those things had run their course. Same shows. Same shows yeah. doing that. And they do something similar in England. They, I guess they want you to go to the games. So you can't, and the games are very expensive now. So soccer is, or football or calcio is, is it, it's not as easy to consume as we do where we can watch a lot of games. So I think it's, I thought it was a great answer, Ryan. And I think uh, a lot of people, people envy us around the world, I'm sure. But if you want to watch as much soccer as you can, you come to the U.S. Like that's just a fact. <laughs> that should be that should be on the Statue of Liberty at this point. We should put that <laughs> on there with everything else. Yeah, the time zone makes it tough. I guess that's the one thing. But you know, don't come to the West Coast. Go to the East Coast, and you'll be set. Nothing will be on too late or too early. You can watch soccer from what seven a.m. to La Liga finishes probably around five p.m. Like on a Saturday. Like yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, and you could watch Mexican game, MLS. Go right into MLS. Oh, I mean, it's it's <laughs> insane. And and look, uh, the Asian Cup and uh, Afcon. I watched a lot more than I historically watched because it was available. Paramount yep. showed it all. BN yep. showed it most of it, and then I had a, a service where I could fill in the gas. But I couldn't watch all of it, but I watched yep. plenty, and I I enjoyed it. I was glad it was there. So uh, it's it. We're in a good spot now. We're not going to get to host the World Cup all that often. And you mentioned, yeah. this will be my final question, but it just hosting it, maybe more of an analy analytics uh, perspective, we go back to it. Hosting that, how big of an edge? Because look, Asian Cup, the host one, AFCON, the host one. Uh, hosts generally do pretty well, unless they're a country that's well low in the rankings. How much do you think that's going to bolster the Euro? How, I don't want to, let me not ask it like that, but how well do you think they can use that to, to get to a place they may not have been before? Totally. I mean, I think like home field advantage is huge in every sport. Um, it makes a bigger difference than I think anyone realizes um, for various reasons. Maybe it's the fans, maybe it's the refs being influenced by the fans, whatever it is, it's just factually, this has been studied. Um, and so to be one of the three teams with home field advantage at the World Cup while no one else has it, and it's like you just keep getting home games, right? Like it's not like <laughs> that's a good point. Play game, you just keep getting them, so the advantage kind of builds up. So I, I think it's really like it's a huge advantage, and I think right, like let's let's think back. Qatar, not a good example, but the U.S. is a much higher level team than Qatar. Um, Qatar was a bit of an outlier because I think they just were, I mean, they I, they mismanaged it because they were so prepared for it, it seemed yeah. like they're, and then all of a sudden, and now they've been good again. So maybe they were yeah. the deer in the headlights kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and then Russia gets out of their group at the World Cup. They took Croatia to penalties who made it to the World Cup final. Um, and that was uh, a poor Russian team. That wasn't a Russian yes. team anyone rated. Yes. Um, Brazil, you know, that maybe not a great example for how that ended, but they did make the semis, right? They haven't made the semis in a while. Um, I think of, you know, we think of Japan and Korea, which is kind of the first World Cup where I was like watching every yeah, game. Great example. Both of those teams had huge, huge success, huge advantages. Uh, Germany obviously won in 2006. Um, I, I just think that, yes, like it's, I just keep coming back to like, 
this kind of, I don't know if I want to use the phrase golden generation, but it's like the best generation of American players ever in terms of how successful they are in Europe, right? Going to all be in their primes and it's going to be at home. It's just like every factor is coming together for this to be like a very successful tournament for the U.S. <laughs> we just said seven games that that stuck with me because, as you oh. said, you get another home game and everyone else doesn't. So yep. they're still I mean, the U.S. are going to be together, but they're, they're you know, technically at home. There's going to be creature comforts yep. and then these other countries are like, oh, you have to do it here. We have to travel here and it'll yep. be made as relatively easy as possible for the U.S. Ryan O'Hanlon. ESPN writer, check out his writing there on ESPN.com and several other uh, platforms. Net gains inside the beautiful game, the analytics revolution. Get your copy now. It's a great read and you'll get a lot smarter about the sport. Ryan, you did fantastic. Your Thank book you. and in person. Well done. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. We'll be back here with a check complete, a closer look at what's going on with the U.S. men's national team players as they prepare for the March Nations League. As we will do with some regularity here on the Soccer OG, keep an eye on the U.S. Men's National Team Player Pool. We'll have a big roster reveal in a couple weeks uh, ahead of the Nations League, and then we'll have a real big one ahead of Copa America. I, there will probably be a lot of similarities between those two. Similar team, you would hope. Uh, uh, certainly the core is going to remain the same. Some fringe players may change and injuries and all that will play a part here. I mean, the Nations League too, you have to wonder what they do with fullbacks because remember Serginho Dest suspended for that first game uh, against uh, Jamaica. So uh, this, despite all of that, it, I, I think the two roster reveals are going to be very similar. I want to look at the forwards because to me, now, earlier on the show, I said you want to be as difficult to beat as possible. And in order to do that, the United States needs to have a back line and a goalkeeper that are in sync, that are repelling, obviously not kept too busy by the other players on the field. So our best bet still is to win games 1-0 as opposed to 4-3. So uh, we need that robust defensive line. Uh, I've seen some good things from Chris Richards the last couple of weeks, which is promising Goalkeeper, still a bit puzzling. Uh, Matt Turner is now the backup at Nottingham Forest. The, the new Cooper they have there not, hasn't been that spectacular by any means, so I wouldn't rule Matt Turner out yet. And they're in a relegation fight. You have Ethan Horvath is now in the championship, so I think that secures his spot, not just directly. And I don't want to be this person that says, oh, he plays here, he's in. That's not how it works. You have to play well on the national team, and regardless of where you play, that will determine that. So I, I still think that it's, a, it's an issue of Ethan Horvath playing, which I think he'll be able to do. So you want to be tough to beat. So we need to have that good core of goalkeepers and we need at least two center backs we can rely on. I don't know if we can rely on any of them right now. You know, Tim Ream is finally receding, unfortunately, but we knew it was going to come. And although Cameron Carter-Vickers and Miles Robinson and Chris Richards, and uh, who am I forgetting? Uh, Mark McKenzie, and there's a, that group. None of them have emerged as a guy. Lock him in, in the lineup, etched in ink. So that's important, because that's uh, what the U.S. did at the World Cup to find success, and they did have success. But what about the forward situation? It looks good. Kind of <laughs> You know, the arrival of Falar and Balogun meant we didn't have to debate who was going to be the starter. 
and what about five six months into more than that actually of his U.S. career, uh, he still should be the number one. But it is it's not so cut and dry. He's been injured recently. He just came back to action from Monaco. Played ten minutes over the weekend. He's not scoring uh, for club, and obviously for country, he hasn't really settled in either. To me, he's still the number one because I don't want to have that argument. Uh, he and he's back in time, so he'll have a couple games to get back uh, on, on the tracks. Hopefully, starts. Hopefully, scores. Uh, Ricardo Pepe's there playing a lot of important games, albeit as a reserve. But when he plays, he scores. Plays for, scores for club. Scores for country. So there, there is a, a, a minor debate as to who should be the starter, although it really, I'm just, I mean, I just know how sports work. You go with that guy, you go. And then maybe after the Copa America, or maybe somewhere around it, you make a really tough decision if, in fact, Balogun is not looking like he can handle that role. Uh, Ricard, but regardless of that, he is going to make the roster. And then... The backup's going to be Ricardo Pepe. The question is, with these tournaments, are they going to be a 23-man roster? It seems like it will be. And if it's a 23-man roster, unlikely that they bring in three forwards. Uh, what do you do? I would like a third forward, but you know you don't want to do that at the expense of a fifth midfielder or fullback or winger or a guy who can kind of maybe bounce around a couple of positions, but that is there the situation where we might bring in three forwards. Uh, we do have depth issues at the winger. Our starters are Weah and Pulisic, and that is no questions asked because there's a huge drop-off to who is next. And do maybe the question is, do we bring in three wingers because the quality um, drops after those two? Uh, Taylor Booth is back in the Netherlands, scoring goals, I think it's too soon to kind of throw him in there. Uh, I would like to see more and how he finishes the season with Utrecht before we bring him into the national team. So I don't think he's going to be an option for the Nations League, but maybe for Copa America. Alejandro Zendejas, and maybe Cade Cal gets in there the way he is trucking along at Chivas. Wouldn't rule it out. you know. And remember, my over-under on MLS players making the Nations League roster and or Copa America is two and a half. Two and a half. I'm pretty sure two will make it. We'll see if a third does. That's a good betting line. Maybe I should get into this sports betting. DraftKings, FanDuel, holler. So do we bring a third winger? And I would say at this point, no. I would rather bring in a third forward because the guys three, four, and five are playing well. Nobody is playing any better than Haji Wright who's at Coventry. You know, I remember when I first started covering Coventry City, covering the Premier League. Coventry City was a Premier League team, and now they're making uh, a push, and he is a huge reason why. I mean, the championship has been great viewing for us Americans, so many players, and now you can add Ethan Horvath to that. Coventry is in eighth, so just in case you didn't know, the Top two teams in the English Championship, which would be Leicester for sure, and at this point, Leeds, go directly back to the Premier League. Teams three, four, five, and six would play for the third spot in a little tournament, which is one of the best viewing of the season in any league or any sport. And sixth, which is Norwich and Josh Sargent, 
is currently one point ahead of Coventry. It is really packed all the way from fifth. I mean, the top four are pretty set, but from fifth to, say, 11th, they're all in the mix. So um, Haji Wright scored two goals over the weekend, scored a goal to get Coventry into the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. So that's going to be fun. And they're playing Maidstone United. Maidstone, the the Cinderella team in uh, the FA Cup from the sixth division, is there. So uh, that I mean, that's going to be that's a game we all want to watch, right? It's not the quarterfinals; it's a round of sixteen. But Coventry should make it to the quarterfinals based on that opponent. That's great for Haji Wright. Uh, he's played some winger, so and he played at the World Cup. So I think Haji Wright right now, I would put him in slightly ahead of Josh Sargent. But maybe Josh Sargent, because he can play some winger too, makes it ahead of the third best winger. This is a, a huge decision. It, no one's going to like how it comes out because it, it, the, the margins are too thin between three, four, and five. But I would say Haji Wright is clear at three. Josh Sargent is number four. And a few guys, Jordan Pifal, Jesus Vareta, probably competing, probably uh, not going to make it. Uh, bad news, Daryl DK, Achilles injury. Unfortunately, becoming an injury-prone athlete, and uh, that's he's not going to be on the radar anytime soon. He just came back. He's another player playing in the English Championship for West Brom. We wish him the very best. Oh, Brandon Vasquez. Brandon Vasquez scoring goals down in Monterrey. Maybe put him just behind Sargent. Sargent's playing well. I saw an article where they said Josh Sargent's the most important player for Norwich. I don't watch enough Norwich games to provide an opinion, but I will take their word for it. And he's playing and scoring. All right, so Valigan one, Pepe two, Haji Wright three, Sergeant four, Brandon Vasquez five. Read him and weep. That's the way we'll have it. We'll continue to have coverage of the U.S. men's national team who also announced a friendly against Colombia ahead of the Copa America. Our guy, tactical manager, I saw him on Instagram saying that they're going to get a game against Brazil. Uh, he has very good sources. Uh, so, you know, games against Colombia and Brazil ahead of the Copa America, fantastic for uh, the United States men in what is going to be uh, a sink or swim 2024. And it all starts on March 21st when they play Jamaica in the CONCACAF Nations League semifinals in Jerry's World in North Texas. The Colombia game is June 8th, and we'll see about a Brazil game. Lots of exciting stuff. It's going to get here very quickly. So buckle in. Rate, review, download, subscribe, tell a friend. The Soccer OG Podcast, a service as we found out today with my guest in the business end for the entire planet where you can get smarter and wiser. Hopefully you can laugh a little bit. You can cry uh, along with me here on the podcast. Check out the Soccer OG on my YouTube page under my name, Max Bretos. New videos coming out there all the time. I comb my hair and I put on a nice shirt just for you guys. So we'll see you again. MLS preview coming up next week. And until then... Take care of yourselves and Placido Domingo.